0: We're live. My guest today is Susanna Evans. She's product lead for IBC. Today we're diving deep into blockchain interoperability. We're going to be looking at different bridge designs and why IBC stands out. Also looking to understand how IBC works under the hood, looking at the fault isolation mes- mechanisms that makes IBC safe. And also looking at the future of the IBC roadmap. I'm also dying to find out why she thinks animals should have stronger rights, but that the vegans are getting it wrong. So before we get started, make sure to hit the like button, hit the notification bell and subscribe to get notified when I go live every week. And remember that none of what we discuss here on the interop is financial advice. And if you enjoy this content, please consider staking with us. We're live on Ethmos, Quicksilver very soon, very, very soon on osmosis. Just look for the interop in the active validator set. My guest, Susanna Evans is coming up next, right here on the interrupt. Hi, Susanna.
1: Hey, how's it going? Hey,
0: I'm good. How are you? Thanks for joining me on this uh, on this podcast.
1: Yeah. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah, well, so, I mean, I, I first you know, I first encountered you, I think, right around Nebular Summit last year. Uh, you were introduced to me by folks at uh, the ICF, and you gave a talk there. And then you also gave a talk uh, at the, uh, or you were on a panel, rather, uh, at the event that we did in Medellin. And uh, yeah, I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a while, because I think, like, you're one of these people that are, you know, really important to, you know, build, building out the IBC standard, but maybe are not super visible, like on social media, you're, like, you know, yeah. you're, you're operating, you know, in an operational sense and, but you have, a, I think a really uh, broad overview and understanding of IBC. And so uh, it made sense for, for us to have a chat here and kind of like dive in, dive deep into that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I remember there's like, the especially the pan. we also did a panel at nebula that one was really great i remember yeah, it was, yeah, uh, yeah. uh but yeah uh, i guess like i actually have only been working um on ibc since last may um but before that i was uh, uh <laughs> hey carlos uh yeah but before that i was um working with zero knowledge validator so i was kind of exposed to the cosmos ecosystem especially because they were running some privacy related events so they're quite engaged yeah. with cosmos and yeah i guess i became cosmos pilled and really uh, wanted to be more involved and yeah then i uh, like applied for this job uh, with the ibc go team um and yeah that's like kind of how i got here so yeah but then i i would say i'm a bit more uh under the cover on social media. I'm more of a, I just look at what's happening. Um, I, I'm not a massive participant. I've just never really been hugely into social media. Maybe I should make more of an effort on that part, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm just in the background maybe. <laughs> yeah,
0: at least get some work done, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 I actually have uh, responsibilities.
0: Yeah, uh, I actually, when I was doing the, the research here, I uh, looked at, I looked you up on LinkedIn, and I hadn't realized that you've been working with uh, with Anna and her team at the Zero Knowledge Validator. And before yeah. that, you were working at Rolls Royce, like earlier in your career. <laughs> what were you doing yeah. at Rolls Royce?
1: <laughs> so um, I did an engineering degree. Um, the first two years were general, and then I specialized in manufacturing. And in my first and second year of university, I did some internships at Rolls-Royce. I very much decided I didn't want to be in this traditional engineering industry. It was uh, kind of an eye-opening experience in a way to be working in such a massive organisation, but there were just so many things which didn't really appeal to my working style in general. Um, You know, things are very, very slow um there's a lot more like barriers to getting things done quickly just when you have to coordinate with so many layers and um that kind of thing but it was still like fun I I, I was in my first internship I was working um <laughs> I was working with jet engines and I was uh, doing some like non-destructive testing of turbine blades which is like the most critical part in the engine because it goes to the highest temperature. Um, So you really need to make sure that nothing's gonna go wrong there. And then my second internship, I was- Need to make sure those
0: jet engines don't explode me there. Yeah, yeah, well,
1: you know, (laughs) I think a lot of people in crypto are flying quite regularly. So uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, they're pretty vital for that. But um, yeah, it's it's, uh, (laughs) it's very heavy industry. And then, uh, yeah, I was also looking at just how, um, I was looking at helicopter engines and um, how <laughs> basically looking at incidents of the engines um, and like kind of trying to get to the root cause of where these problems came from. Uh, so pretty interesting, some quite uh, interesting incident reports that came through on that one, which I was like very interested to read, uh, but yeah, it was just not my, not my uh, long-term aspiration really.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, it's yeah, it's cool that you, you got to sort of come over to the, the side of crypto um, and especially working on Cosmos. Uh, I, I want to get this out of the way because we were talking about it a little bit before the show. But you mentioned <laughs> that you used to be a pretty staunch vegan and that you have yeah. now moved away from that. And I thought that was really interesting because for a couple of years in my late 20s and like early 30s, I was also a pretty uh, strict vegan and I, I I feel like you know it was a point in my life where I was kind of going through some some changes, right? Some like pretty significant transitions. And um, and like looking back on it now, I, I can see how I I was like perhaps indoctrinated a little bit by like this movement and like these people that I was hanging around with at that time. And it's um, and now I've I've sort of like totally you know, put that behind me and like, I'm no longer following that diet or, you know, really mm, like, you know, adhering to, you know, that ideology. I, I think mm-hmm. that like, I think that radical veganism is sort of like a cult actually. And, uh, and that I kind of got pulled into it. So I'm curious what your, <laughs> like, what your view is on that. If you, if you feel that you, you know at some point you yeah. were kind of brought into this thing in similar ways
1: so I I think it was um, I mean the trigger for me to go from being kind of normal omnivore um, was I actually did um, I was working in a sandwich factory and I saw um, just like the scale of meat going into these sandwiches and it's like I was like okay this is literally one sandwich factory and there's like you know, thousands of these across the world, and that's just sandwiches. You know, uh, so I was like, really, that was really eye opening. And then I first just went vegetarian, and then I, um, I did, I, I watched Cowspiracy and that really made me feel kind of guilty for not going oh, the not full way.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I, I guess I was indoctrinated through that. But um, yeah, then I was like, okay, I feel it, it was very guilt guilt-driven I was like okay I feel like I like I can't really um, live with myself not committing to this Uh, so I was vegan for like three years and I was very like rigid about it and I think uh, it became kind of like a part of my identity that I was like you know this vegan person and then I guess I just did a bit more like introspection and there was some like change in my life circumstances and I realized I was kind of like holding on to this, uh, perspective as like a part of my identity, but I didn't really actually think it was, you know, my real identity. It was just like something which I was being very stubborn about, um, not like kind of for the sake of it. I did believe in the whole ethical, um, you know, logic for being vegan, but it made just normal life a lot more difficult. And especially when you're socializing and meeting new people, um, it's just like kind of annoying and inconvenient for them. And I just like realized like, this isn't, this doesn't have to be a core element of me. It's like, I can resonate with the values of veganism, but I just thought, I'm just going to relax a bit. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, so that's my story. And now I don't eat meat, but I'll occasionally eat fish and sometimes like cheese and eggs, but yeah.
0: I was, I, I, that, that all resonates with me very strongly. And I, I think that there is, there's such a huge guilt aspect to that entire movement. And, um, and, you know, also coming out of that, I realized that, you know, the, 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 there are many aspects of what sort of the, you know, this, this kind of vegan movement that has become an industry, uh, you know, tries to pass off as good, Uh, healthy eating is actually just like horrible eating. I mean, I remember, you know, discovering these, you know, whatever incredible burgers or, you know, this kind of like, you know, whatever, you know, mash of processed uh, oils (laughs) and whatever. And like, every time I eat one, I just feel so horrible after I felt (laughs) so bad for, for hours. And I was like, what is this? And it's just like, a lot of, a lot, I think a lot of these processed uh sort of vegan uh, meat-like products or cheese-like products are just not good for you. And, uh, and, the, and the thing is like, if you, if you have a pretty active lifestyle and, and you're not able to, you know, properly cook uh, every single meal and like really make sure that you're getting, uh, I mean, I'm not like, I'm not a nutritionist by any means, but like being very careful about cooking just like kind of whole foods you you easily very quickly get into this uh you know eating this kind of shit food yeah um and i actually i've actually encountered quite a few vegans that were like quite overweight right i was like how is this possible how is this person overweight? <laughs> they're like they're just like eating this horrible oily yeah. fatty yeah. food um but yeah I'm not to make this all about uh vegan <laughs> because people are dropping off the live stream. Uh, <laughs> but um yeah so I, I wonder if you can give us maybe like a brief history of IBC um if that's something you're you know you're familiar with because I know you, you've been working on the project for uh, about a year and a half uh, you know do, do you have a sense for where IBC came from and like how those ideas came to be uh, and, and and you know to be implemented and, and active uh, actively working as they are now
1: so I I just I, I've been uh, a part of the IBC team for I think Now it's like nine nine or ten months so a bit a bit like under over a year and a half but uh from like what i have heard um there were like um well so we still have like aditya who was one of the kind of um early uh contributors to ibc um, I, there was also uh, Ethan Fry and Chris Goes who were involved there, and Federico who co founded Evmos, and then also Colin, who's also still on our team. Um, they were kind of involved with the, the V1. Um, I think Chris Goes was kind of leading the team, and then he moved on to uh, like Heliax and Enoma. Um, yeah. And yeah, Federico also moved on. Uh, Ethan uh, created Cosmosm um but yeah I think they were kind of the core team then there were lots of other kind of involvement from other teams like I think uh informal did some kind of uh formal verification of the code um I know that like Strangelove were involved in the launch very much of IBC and uh I don't know exactly who was like uh, you know uh, working on it in those early days because this is only kind of what i've heard but then there was the kind of whole uh, organizational split and you know people moved entities and stuff um and then colin and aditya moved over into interchain which is like where the team is now and then the team grew um we had uh there's Charlie was an early member um, and Carlos and Thomas and then some more engineers joined Damien, Kian, uh, we have Addy as well uh, who's working on the product team with me Um, so I guess since that very small team the team's now nine people um, like it's kind of incredible to think that there are only like you know like kind of single digit numbers of engineers working on the protocol and it's like when it launched, I think it was about over a year and a half ago. Now. Um, I think it was like September, uh, 21 is it around since it's something like that was the not, not, sorry. It was, um, because I know that September last year was like the 18 month anniversary. So sorry, my maths on the spot's quite terrible. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess I can't give too much context on the history, given that I wasn't involved in the early days, um, but.
0: <laughs> no, but I think what, what Bear is kind of thinking about here and what's interesting is that IBC has only been live for uh, a, I think like about a year and a half, you know, since, since I mean, basically since Osmosis launched, right, is, is really when IBC yeah. kind of took off. And it, it it's something that we had always, been looking forward to in Cosmos, right? It's like, when is IBC going to go live? And when IBC goes live, it's going to be great. And like, um, but when when Osmosis uh, went live and IBC went live around that same time, I think everybody's minds were kind of blown as just how well this protocol was working and how, um, how it just dramatically improved the user experience uh, around sending tokens. And it's only gotten better since then, you know, in large part because it's been integrated in all of the uh, Cosmos apps. So when you're using Osmosis, for example, and you do a withdrawal, the IBC transfer happens in the interface and it, it's just so seamless that you, you sign and you'll, your tokens end up on the other chain and it just works so well. And to the point now where you can use IBC without really using your wallet, it's it's all built into applications and i think that's yeah. really where the value of icbc really shines is how it just improves user experience uh overall
1: yeah i mean it's like fundamentally the the protocol is an infrastructure product like it's it's kind of designed to be there ultimately in the background like i think the yeah the best experience is like when you use these kind of front-end applications, which have all of the kind of, uh, the details kind of abstracted away from the user. It's like, you don't have to be putting in the channel ID, um, things like this, which are a bit complicated if you're doing your uh, IBC transactions manually through like Kepler. Um, So that's why, you know, uh, Evmos, Osmosis, kind of Axlar as well. Um, And there's there's, there's loads of other examples as well. who have kind of done this abstraction away for you um, and make it a really seamless experience but yeah the the core protocol is this infrastructure layer which is designed for people to build on top of and you know do 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 things on top of ivc uh, at the application layer um and you know have this really secure reliable transport layer um which is which is a uh, yeah not going to be at risk of uh you losing all your funds if you use this or something, uh, but. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll
0: talk, we'll talk about that, about that aspect uh, in a little bit later. I, I want to ask you though, what is like, what's, what is your, your job essentially, like as the product lead of an open source so- software project? Um, <laughs> what, what are, what are the things that you do? And yeah, cause I think when you think about a product lead, to most people you think about a software product or like a, you know, like a, a user facing product, where's the button yeah. going to be? How's that experience going to be like, but when, a, when thinking of this open source product, uh, you're thinking about code and how developers are going to be able to use those code. So what is that like? And who are the stakeholders that you need to satisfy? Who are you thinking about when building that product and who are like, you know what are the moving pieces there?
1: Yeah. So, Like as you said, uh, like with a product owner, your like main uh, concern is the users. And I guess with it being this open source infrastructure product, our users are chain developers and people that want to to integrate IBC Go into their their blockchain. Um, So I spend time talking to users, um, which are developers, asking them, you know, are they fine using IBC Go, understanding the pain points. um, And then that just feeds into the work to be done to improve the protocol. Um, If there's things which are like blocking teams from actually um, kind of using IBC in the way that they want to. So there's like one kind of blocker at the moment, um, which is like a lack of callbacks from the application modules. And this is really important for using ibc with smart contracts um but this was like not kind of an original it wasn't like one of the yeah kind of v1 uh features or or like an early feature of ibc but think little things like that which uh, you just find out from speaking to users of oh i actually wanted to do this thing and i can't or actually we were using this and uh, it wasn't quite as easy to do this or it wasn't easy to understand this thing or things like that. And then that just feeds into prioritization and planning for engineering.
0: Cause there's two parts to this, right? There's the standard, which is a set of rules or, I mean, it's a protocol, right? So it's like how software yeah. talks to each other. And then there's the actual implementation, which is kind of the product and that's IBC go. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're involved mostly with, with the implementation, not so yes. much the protocol. Right.
1: So like the, the protocol, the, interchain standards, that's uh, what they called, so, like, the, the repository is just IBC. Um, yeah, it basically defines the uh, semantics of uh, how an IBC implementation must be to actually be considered an IBC implementation. And uh, I guess the beauty of that is that it kind of doesn't matter which, uh, like, programming language you implement ibc in as long as it's adhering to these standards then you should in theory be able to have two instances of ibc communicating with each other if it's all implemented correctly um and yeah ibc go is just the first implementation of these standards and that's what our team is focused on developing and maintaining
0: yeah. and that's Which the of one that, all, you... that
1: use
0: <laughs> yeah which repos do you oversee specifically
1: uh the ibc go so it's cosmos forward slash ibc go and then the standards kind of feed into work that happens in ibc go as well because like uh new features will be specified and then they'll be implemented in ibc go and then there's i think the there's a couple other implementations there's ibc rs which is like a bit behind ibc go not yet used in production uh, but it's you know kind of catching up and then as a solidity implementation as well which is also not used in production but it's uh yeah but yeah so There's the, so the retail, uh,
0: implementation
1: yeah it's uh it's it's not like production ready um but yeah for like you know the the future of uh, IBC in Ethereum, you would need IBC to be implemented in Solidity to work there.
0: Okay, that breaks my entire mo- mental model about how this works. But we're gonna, I'm um, yeah, uh, <laughs> I'll follow up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a pin in that, and we'll come back to it later. Um, <laughs> so, beyond those nine people that you mentioned, there are obviously open source contributors. So, how how yeah, many? Me. People are we talking about that are contributing to IBC and uh, moving IBC Go forward?
1: Yeah. So it's also just like important to note that IBC Go is just like kind of one part of the whole IBC like ecosystem. As I mentioned, like there's IBC RS, which is IBC Invest and IBC Solidity. But like a key component of IBC is the relayers, which is kind of the off chain infrastructure to actually move packets back and forth and enable chains to communicate. Um, you don't just have the protocol alone, you also need re- this this relay software and relays to be operating. Um, there's two relays right now. So there's a relayer in Go, which is managed, developed by Strangelove. There's a relayer in Hermes, which is uh, managed and developed by Informal. And then beyond this, there's also Of ibc applications and middleware um strange love does some applications and middleware um informal um is doing obviously rs and hermes and then like lots of (laughs) like it's a very big ecosystem there's also um like organizations like polymer who are working and contributing actively to ibc um they contributed some work on multi-hop routing and a local host client and they have their own kind of IBC use case for connecting uh non-cosmos chains um to cosmos chains as like a yeah. router. Um so it's like there's there's really a very large uh, like number of organizations which are getting involved with IBC related development and different kind of elements of the stack as well and like also you know uh the future to to have more kind of cross-chain smart contracts so like cosmos is really relevant here um yeah it's uh it's also uh, i should have like basically for um ibc to spread beyond cosmos you have a big component of light client development um which Strangelove are involved in. And also some other teams like Composable who uh, want to create like a Cosmos, a uh, Dot connection and also a connection with NIR. So there's lots of like broader IBC work going on other, other than just IBC Go.
0: Wow, I I didn't realize that there's so many teams were contributing back to IBC, like Polymer and and, uh, Composable and all these other teams, so it's it's very cool. I mean, especially since I know that those teams are focused on bringing IBC outside of the quote unquote Cosmos ecosystem. And I think this is one of the really interesting things about IBC is that even though today it's mostly used between Cosmos SDK chains, there is a real effort to bring IBC outside of the Cosmos ecosystem, and I think it's it's also it is recognized outside of the Cosmos ecosystem as uh, a great standard, and I, and I think you know, given the right implementations and overcoming some of the challenges of implementing IBC outside of you know fast finality chains, uh, it, it can be implemented across other other ecosystems as well. You know, and it probably will be. So very uh, optimistic about that. Um, (laughs) so what are the key components here? So you mentioned light clients, uh, relayers and, uh, channels. Can you, can you describe, I mean, maybe, maybe one way we can do this is like describe the life of an IBC packet, um, you know, from chain A to chain B and how it interacts with all of those different components.
1: Yeah. So that's, that's. There's kind of two kind of dis- like elements of the IBC protocol. You've got the application layer and you've got the transport layer. So the application- oh, Sorry, layer... uh, Susanna,
0: there's just, um, there's a bit of noise from the wind. I wonder if- Oh, I'll close the door. Yeah. Okay. I'll just Thanks. place the door. Is
1: that better? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah, so There's two layers, you've got the application layer and the transport layer. The application layer, you'll have um, your specific module, like it could be token transfer, or it could be cross-chain query or interchain accounts. And um, this application module will interface with the channels, um, which is kind of like the top layer of the transport layer. And then the transport layer consists of like clients, connections and channels. So it's like, those are the key components to think about. Um, a light client is just an algorithm to track the consensus state of another chain, um, yeah. and connection is just um, the, the the yeah. You have two chains; they'll have a connection between them built on a certain light client, and then the channel is the kind of application-specific conduit um, for for this. Um, like it could be for token transfer, you'll have a separate channel for queries, you'd have a separate channel for instant accounts. Um, So those are like the main components. And so basically, just two
0: chains that are that have a connection would have different channels for all of those things. And and by the way, those things are, uh, are standards in themselves, right? So moving. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, ICS twenty tokens, or moving ICS seven twenty one tokens, or doing an interchain query, which is itself another standard. You need a channel for each of those things.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, each each like application module will claim like their channel and be attached to that specific channel. And then what's the channel- process
0: of implementing that channel? Is the, the, do both? So both chains have to implement it in their Cosmos SDK software, do an upgrade such that the channel is, established, is is there and then how do they initiate the connection?
1: So when you have two chains that both have um, an implementation of IBC, uh, a light client would um, spin up, uh, sorry, a relayer would spin up a light client of that chain and the, the other chain would have the light client of the the counterparty chain and then these two chains would perform a connection handshake. So that's basically to say, okay, um, chain A um, has, is, is um, running a like client of chain B um, and they're like, hi, chain B, nice to meet you. You seem, everything is checking out as expected. Chain B will then be like, hello, yes, you also look as I expect you to be. So now we can have this connection. And then if you have a specific um, application that you want to use, so say token transfer, then the relayer will spin up a channel as well on top of this client and connection and then be able to send packets along this channel. So it's very like the relayer has to set up the uh, client connection channel uh, to use that to transmit the packets between the two chains. Um,
0: And relayers don't need to be I mean, relayers and validators are separate things like a relayer can just be any old, you know, uh, client that is relaying those packets and sending it to the chain to be included uh, in a in a transaction. Correct?
1: Yeah. So relaying is completely permissionless, like anyone can, in theory, relay packets like Anyone can see, oh, okay, this user um, wants to do a token transfer. They can see, okay, token transfer. Then, technically, anyone who's running the relayer infrastructure can just relay this packet. However, in practice, running a relayer isn't really, like, a trivial task. <laughs> like, you need to be running a full node of the chain, of the two chains that you're relaying between. Um, this is so that you can update the light client that's uh, checking the consensus state of the other chain. So you need a block header from your full node um, and you construct the proof to update the light client. Um, so it's like, in theory, anyone can do this, but in reality, it's mostly relayers doing this because it's not really trivial to be just running full nodes of multiple chains and- uh, You mean
0: validators are doing this?
1: Yeah, because they- Because they, yeah. they they're already ex-
0: running- Yeah, clients. exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Although I'd say like relaying is um, like more of a um, complicated task than validating. I really? think in reality, um, I'm not personally a validator, but um, you know, from like my understanding and past experience of validator operations, it's kind of like once you have your setup going and everything's running smoothly, you know the the most intervention you have to do is like upgrading uh when there's chain upgrade and things like this it's like once you have a stable setup it's like relatively stable and straightforward I think getting a solid relaying setup is a bit more challenging and it's also a bit more active involvement like um yeah it's a bit more of a a challenge and also like one thing with relaying is uh, relays have to pay for the transaction fees um on either side uh, chains will reimburse this typically um either with like off-chain funding delegating to the relayer's validator um or such but yeah it's a bit more of a relays really believe in the interchain ecosystem at this point um it's still like kind of problem which should hopefully be be solved soon actually uh, with some work that our team's doing uh, with channel upgradability and then you would be able to add um incentives to existing channels um like relayer incentives uh to kind of cover these costs we hope to make the kind of relayer um role more sustainable um maybe even desirable if it if it really uh, works out nicely but yeah right now it's it's the, the costables on the Relayer.
0: So, so the Relayer, just to kind of recap here, because I think it's yeah. really interesting how this, this Relayer works. So the Relayer, it has a, a, a full node on both, or sorry, the, the Relayer has a full node on one chain that he is relaying for or on both chains? Well, so let's say Adam and Osmosis, like I'm doing, I'm relaying IBC packets uh, for osmosis do I also need the full node client for atom or just osmosis and a light client for the for the, for the chain that I'm re- that I'm receiving packets from
1: well so technically um so so basically in a packet life cycle you have a packet going from chain a to chain b and then um it will receive the packet and then they send back an acknowledgement to say yes I I received the packet and everything is good on kind of the, the happy path of um, like it's gone successful. So um, in theory, these two relays don't need to be the same person in practice. Often chains are running full nodes on like um, both ends. So they so they might just be relaying both of these packets, but yeah, in theory you, you only need to be, I could just be relaying on osmosis. I'm running a relay on, on osmosis and I'm just, i um, like sending packets out from osmosis.
0: Right. So I'm essentially watching for, uh, let's say, let's come back to this osmosis atom uh, scenario. I'm relaying packets for osmosis. I'm watching the atom chain and or I'm watching the osmosis chain. But at some point someone sends a transaction saying, I want to move my atom to osmosis. Uh, they're initiating that transaction on osmosis. Uh, or no, they're initiating that transaction, oh, on uh, Atom. Thousand. Yeah. Uh, where does that information come from? Like, how am I, as my as a as a relayer, receiving that information? Is it a is it because someone is watching the atom chain, and they're sending a transaction on Osmosis? Like that. That's the part that I'm missing here.
1: So the application module will emit an event to say this. On which chain? Some- uh, on 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 atom on 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 the hub the cosmos hub, yeah. so an end user would be like okay I want to send twenty atom from the hub to osmosis, they interact with the application module, it will emit an event, the relay will see this event, then they'll like update the light client and go through the whole uh, whole transport layer process, and then they can actually send this uh, packet. But basically they're like looking out for uh, these these like transactions that users are making and then they'll act act on this. So it's, uh, okay. they're, they're watching basically. Watching so so I need
0: a light, I, as, the, as the osmosis relayer, I need to also have a light client, a, a, a Cosmos Hub light client that I can be watching the Cosmos Hub chain. So I'm essentially running kind of two pieces of infrastructure. I'm running a Cosmos full node and an, uh, uh, sorry, a, a, an osmosis full node and a Cosmos Hub light client.
1: Yeah, well the, the light client is like on chain. It's like the relayer just updates the light client with a new block header. If that makes sense. So like the light clients are like the on-chain component and the full node is the kind of off-chain component which relayers are running as part of their like infrastructure setup.
0: Okay. I, I understand. Okay. And um when when this happens so that transaction goes through, um, what happens when the funds are essentially received when when that uh, token transfer happens? How is it that I can't then spend those tokens, continue spending those tokens on, uh, on the Cosmos hub, uh, yeah. e- effectively ensuring that there's no double spend between the, those two chains once they've finally made it on? On the uh, osmosis chain
1: so uh with this case of uh token transfer ics20 um it's using the bank module which will and the ics20 has like a lock and then mint on the other side mechanism so basically your tokens will be locked into the bank module on the hub and then um they'll be sent over and there's like verification that these tokens actually kind of were minted on the other chain. And um, if there's like a problem that the the hub doesn't get confirmation that these tokens were, were minted, then kind of like, or there was like a problem um, then the whole, the whole thing will like revert and there'll be like a timeout sent to say, okay, these tokens never arrived. Um, don't like, kind of actually uh, mint these tokens on the other chain. So it's like, there's like verification that the action actually took place in the whole life cycle. And um, you can't just kind of be minting uh, tokens like continuously. You have to verify that the user actually like interact with the application module, lock these tokens um, to then be minted on the other chain.
0: Hmm. What, what prevents, so the, the way I see this is, let's say you have like two, uh, two people uh, in like different houses and, you know, in, on one side, someone puts something in a box and they're like, okay, it's in the box. And then they're able to provide a proof to the person across the street that they've put that thing in the box. And yeah, that allows the person on the other street to say, OK, now I, I'll do an action like I'll I'll take my thing out of the box and give it to yeah. you know, the person inside the house. Yeah. But
1: that's a good description. <laughs>
0: but, but 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 here's the thing. Once that's done, um person in the house across the street doesn't can't be certain that the person in the initial house doesn't take the thing out of the box afterwards. So, what prevents basically what prevents the hub in this case uh, from minting those tokens again after some time uh, and uh, in such a way that the osmosis chain would know that that, that has happened?
1: Well, if you don't receive the proof that um, these tokens were taken out of the box after a certain time period, then the whole thing will time out and you won't then be able to like take the tokens anymore. So there's like a, a time, there's a timeout period where you have to um, have received verification that the transaction has, has taken place. And if this time period is exceeded without any verification, then you like revert the whole, the whole process.
0: But, but I mean, you, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm not fully understanding this, but like you could, fork the cosmos SDK and all the modules right uh and and have an ibc go module that is acting normally but in in the code that you've compiled there is a mechanism by which there's like a new transaction type which is like unlock tokens um, without like, uh, which is like unlock the tokens and like remint them, you'd have to be a malicious malicious chain for this. But it is there a mechanism that prevents that? Is there like someone who's watching the chain to make sure that the chain is not acting that the initiating chain is not acting maliciously like some, some time okay. later, so, right? Yeah. Like,
1: yeah, yeah no, I know, I understand uh, what you're asking here now. Um, so like when you update the light client but so the whole point of the light client is to verify that a transaction took place on the counterparty chain so it's like this is like involved in the verification that some action actually happened to say okay then do an action on on this other chain so if someone tries to um trick like like basically create this like fake verification that something happened um, which didn't actually happen, which would then enable me to like mint more tokens or, or do something like this. Um, there is basically another mechanism of Aurelia where they can submit misbehavior to the light client. So another relayer could see, okay, someone tried to um, update a light client incorrectly. So there might be some discrepancy in the consensus state. The the validator set so there might be there's like parameters when you update a light like client to say the yeah. the previous update must have um a certain proportion of the previous validators that signed this consensus state in the next consensus state update so this is like to make sure that someone's not just like forked the chain and created their own validator set and then they're trying to say that these uh, light like client updates are 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 real when it's actually just an entirely new validator set. Um, So, that mechanism will ensure that there's like continuity between the light client updates and they're actually kind of tracking the real consensus state of that chain. So, you'd need like the validators on um, the chain to be colluding basically to submit a a false header to like trick the verification. like to say to pretend something happened when it didn't to 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 kind of get to that situation so it's yeah. quite complicated to do this like like client attack like it's it's not really trivial and i think the thing even though you know a lot of these app chains have like a smaller market capitalization and like um ethereum hmm. they're really not incentivized to um to to do like false false uh like kind updates or things like this, because all of these validators are pretty much not just validating on one chain, it's yeah. like their reputation and there's lots of other things to consider. You so could it's have like,
0: social slashing on other chains as well, like if they were doing this. I mean, yeah. yeah. So Honey it's talks like, about this sometimes.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's it's quite like an elaborate um ploy to do. And and it's even when like um when and you know like terror was kind of collapsing and it wouldn't really have taken that much um like monetary uh, you could you could have kind of bought into yeah. to do this kind of attack but but like it didn't happen as well so um i think it's it, i mean obviously it's possible to happen but i think it's um this kind of whole mechanism is why like ibc is so secure really <laughs>
0: I read somewhere that uh, IBC relies on two trust assumptions. Uh, One that, um, oh, I forgot what it is. Uh, That that users trust the chain with which you're interacting, and the other is these fault these fault isolation mechanisms that prevent the chains from uh, executing malicious behavior. And the way I describe IBC to people, it's like I, I describe it as moving going from one place to another and using a bridge. So you could go from New York to New Jersey and, and take a bridge to do that. If you go to New Jersey, what happens to you in New Jersey is your own problem. Like it, it's on you for having gone to New Jersey, like not, not a diss on New Jersey or anything, but just whatever. Um, I've never been to neither New York or New Jersey. So what the fuck do I know? Yeah, basically, you cross the bridge and you go to, you know, let's say like they like the town, right? And it was like the good side of town, and the bad side of town. And then there's another bridge that takes you to like an equally good side of town. Like you could take that bridge and go to the good side of town. And what happens to you there is your problem. And then like someone else could take a bridge and go to the bad side of town. And if something happens to them there, that's their problem. But at least the bridges are not going to collapse under their feet. Like there's always <laughs> a way to be a way to come back as long as you haven't been wrecked when you're in that other side of town. You could still take the bridge and come back, and also the bridge is not going to collapse under you. Yeah, that's kind of the way I describe, obviously, to people.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it's like unless there is um, some like mis like misbehavior. It, it, I think like like a common misconception is that 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 we hear is like people think that you can just close a channel, you know, which is just like not true. The only reason like a channel would close is in like there's, there's there's really two two circumstances. One is where there is some kind of um, misbehavior, like you know, the, there's some discrepancy, but then and then the light client will um, be frozen, so you wouldn't be able to transfer any funds like back and forth with the connection and channel built on top of this light client. Then the other case is um, for specific channel types. So you have for interchain accounts, you have a need to have orders channels at the moment and these don't support timeouts so basically every transaction has to arrive and if a packet like there's there's some reason why this specific packet um doesn't reach the the end the end the other chain um and it times out then that channel will close but then basically just means that you have to open another channel um it's like it's, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's been a bit like a bit of a pain point, but um, those are the two reasons why like a channel would close really. And if
0: there's, if um, all the relayers of, if all the relayers decide that they go offline, then that basically compromises liveness, but anybody can become a relayer. So at that point, anybody else can. um, So I guess that's maybe one of the like it doesn't compromise on security, but it compromises on liveness because the relayers are not like a decentralized network that like ensures that there's already, always a relayer uh, available. Yeah. Um, but anybody could spin up a relayer and uh, make it such that the channel would be available again. That's right. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And I mean, okay. although it's like not the relayer network is not like necessarily super decentralized, um, there's always pretty much always coverage and i think the relay community is really like yeah they're they're positive and nice people and they like actually want to you know if there's like a problem like there's um a buildup of uh packets that aren't being relayed on a specific channel people will like clear the channel um they're kind of yeah actively trying to make sure things are working well um Mm. so yeah it, it although it's not like yeah, exactly, a decentralized network, but it, 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 work, it generally works like pretty well.
0: So th- so we talked about token transfers, and I think that's the, the the use case for IBC that most people have interacted with so far, those who have used IBC. Uh, there are other applications for IBC, Interchain Accounts is one of them. It's one that is beginning to come online now um, yeah, in, yeah, in some cases, then Interchain Queries also. Uh, there's, uh, there's, I mean, I was, I was in the repo, and I, I was kind of discovering all of these other uh, ICS standards. So there's ICS 29, which is uh, a standard to incentivize relayers, and there's a bunch of other ones. But maybe let's focus on interchain accounts and interchain queries. And I'm also curious a little bit about this relayer incentivization, uh, because uh, as it's from, from what I'm understanding, like currently relayers are doing this. Uh, because, you know, they're idealistically driven or they may be driven. um, I mean, they may be driven because they also want people to delegate to them. But over over longer periods in the long term, it's likely that the cost of running a relayer would become prohibitive uh, if validator rewards go down or, you know, whatever in some future that we might need to incentivize them. Um, curious to understand how that works as well. So maybe let's uh, focus on the two that p- most people have been most familiar with, and that's Interchain Accounts and interesting Queries. How do they uh, function with the IBC standard? Because just just to kind of point out here, IBC is just a pipe. It it can take any sort of packet. The ICS twenty is one type of packet that it can it can it can send. But interchain accounts and interchain queries and all these other standards are just leveraging this pipe uh, yeah. to, to yeah. initiate a transaction or something.
1: Yes, yeah. yeah, so I think that's quite like a nice way of thinking about it. It's like the, the application module basically defines um all of the data which would need to go in a packet for this specific uh, application. But like to the relayers, I mean that the packets are just bytes, it's just like Data that's being passed between the two chains, like they aren't really concerned with, you know, exactly what the what's required for this application module. They're just kind of like ferrying stuff back and forth. Um, and yeah, the, the, the packet um, semantics for an ICS twenty transfer is going to be different as for an interchain accounts uh, uh, packet or like an interchain queries packet. Um, but then, yeah, ICS-20 was just, like, the first use case that everyone wanted. As you said, like, kind of took off when Osmosis launched, which was, like, you know, the interchain decks. People wanted to move their atom to Osmosis, and, you know, there were other chains live as well. Um, but, yeah, so interchain accounts is kind of like a general message passing protocol and enables you to perform an action on another chain from, like, uh, the controller chain is how you define it. So you have a controller chain, you have a host chain. The controller chain uh, would create an Interchain account on the host chain, and then they can send messages to that account, and that account will then perform actions. Is how I would describe it. Then uh, Interchain queries is uh, there's actually two different uh, implementations for Interchain queries. One is uh, for of client-based queries so it's actually just using um, using using a a light client and um, a full node and you're basically just querying some information on another chain but you don't have to do uh, the full packet round trip but then this is limited to very specific um, queries like uh, it's it's like the yeah, the functionality is basically like limited, but then for this other query approach, it requires a packet round trip. So uh, you like package the query that you want to perform in a packet, you then send it to the other chain, The, the chain will then kind of retrieve all the data needed to fulfill this query and send it back. So there's like two different approaches, but I guess the benefit of the client approach is that you don't have to have the other chain Implement this application module to be able to query that chain. Um, so, with like these more advanced applications, we've seen um, the client queries and interchain accounts being used in production uh, with these liquid staking protocols. So, Stride and Quicksilver are the users of interchain queries and interchain accounts right now. Um, they have a setup where they created a Interchain a so, so so, okay, L- liquid staking is a basic, let's take a step back, liquid staking is, you know, um, having a derivative representation of your staked asset, which you can then use in DeFi. And the way that these protocols work is uh, someone would say, okay, I want to have the staked Atom token. So they'd like deposit some uh, some Atom into Stride. And then once every, like, epoch or n-blocks, they basically send over Atom from from their stride chain to uh, the hub, if we're dealing with staked Atom, to the interchain account on the the hub. And then they'll send a message to the interchain account to stake the Atom. Um, And then that's kind of, like, how they're dealing with... uh, You deposit your... um, your tokens into stride and then you receive this derivative liquid staking token back. Um, so for the user, it's like you just deposit your atom, but under the hood, the atoms being sent um to the hub, being staked, um, all through interchain accounts. And they use queries to um look at like staked balances and stuff. Things like this i think they're also using queries for kind of cross-chain governance applications uh but yeah that's kind of what what's being used for right now um so yeah. what
0: so what's i see here is so people think of ibc and they think of token transfers as that being ibc but what's clear what's becoming clear is that ibc is kind of like tcpip where it's just well like tcp it's just the token. Uh, the the well the packet transfer protocol and then ICS twenty ICS seven twenty one all of these other uh, standards leverage IBC so they're sort of at a higher layer in the stack and they are akin to HTTP FTP SMTP packets for transferring certain types of information and it, it's almost an, a misnomer to to say I'm doing an IBC transfer it's like you're doing a No, you're doing a token transfer over IBC or you're doing an interchain accounts query um, over IBC or an interchain query, whatever, right, over IBC. So yeah, I I just, yeah, yeah, it just became clear to me that like those are two separate things and they should be treated separately.
1: Yeah, it's like what the user is like interacting with is the application, like the kind of application layer and then the application layer is underpinned by this transport layer, like all the kind of, kind of complicated it's handling all the logic of being able to actually pass this packet back and forth and verify that this packet was, you know, it's, it's from like a real transaction. It's not like some, um, you know, someone's trying to submit a fake transaction to mint more tokens or something like this. All of this is, is happening in the, the transport layer kind of under the hood. But the user is just kind of only really concerned with the specific application that they want to use. Um, so, yeah, it's. it's uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and tell me about this uh, incentivized relayer standard. It's ICS 029. Uh, what's the status on that, and what does it aim to do?
1: Yeah. So, this has kind of come out of a big kind of. Uh, Discussion around how, yeah, re- being a relayer is not like it's not really like a money maker right now. You know, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a public good at this point. Um, and we basically wanted a way to be able to have an end user like contributing to the cost of relay relaying. Um, so this middleware would basically wrap a a channel and it would allow a user to attach an additional fee uh with their packet so it would be the like send packet the acknowledgement and the the timeout so there's three packets that could be incentivized and the relay can a, a user could specify um the additional fee for each of these packets or if it's kind of like abstracted away from the user like um you know, as they're saying, like, Osmosis, Evmos have these applications um, where you're just using IBC under the hood, but you're kind of abstracted away from having to pick which channel and connection you're going to be using. Um, They could just have a field, which is, like, kind of tip, and then they could distribute that um, to the relayer, like, amongst these three packets in, like, a proportion they wanted to. But, yeah, the idea was to make something which is kind of relatively neutral we would envision that it would be more on the end user to pay for this uh, this service Um, because there was you know there were kind of some other discussions of how relays could benefit from like um, I don't know potentially kind of like a EIP 1559 kind of um, taking a proportion of like fees something like this or whether you have some kind of like block space market and relayers have some kind of it, it was I mean all of these ideas were kind of possible, but we wanted to just have something that was like relatively straightforward and simple and see whether um yeah, whether whether this would kind of contribute to solving the problem and then if things should 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 become should like should there be a need for a more um advanced like fee reimbursement mechanism further down the line then Can be revisited but the so the one like big caveat on the fee middleware is that the problem is you need um, both both sides of a channel to have this middleware added so this meant that once you've um, once you already have an established channel you can't retroactively add this to your existing channel however We are going to be working on a feature, channel upgradability, um, hopefully kicking that off within the next next few weeks, um, which would allow you to add this middleware to existing channels. And this is really important because especially for token transfer, you've basically got this kind of whole fungibility problem where if you you transferred tokens from a different channel, it wouldn't be fungible with... um, another channel, even if it's, like, between um, the same two chains and built on the same connection, if that makes sense. So there's, like, not token fungibility between channels. And that's, like, an intentional design of IBC. It's, like, part of the security guarantees. Um, But this is then, like, has kind of the knock-on effect of, well, if I've been transferring my tokens down this channel and this is, like, the canonical channel between... uh, these two chains you don't want to open a brand new channel um which would have human wire enabled. you want to retain the fungibility and all of the past state within this channel that you've kind of accumulated. So yeah, that's why we then need to enable channels to kind of renegotiate um the connection the connection handshake that they're they're built on and um, there's question there's a question here in in
0: the audience that uh, this is a, a a regular uh, listener of the channel, he says, "Why aren't validator node operators just forced to be relayers because they're already making money from the protocol? Why isn't it just part of the deal of being a validator that you would also be a relayer? So, yeah, you know, is there uh, something there that's prohibitive from a cost perspective, or maybe it's uh, is it like a game theory thing where validators in being you know, being forced to be relayers?" It could be compromising to the network. What's the rationale here?
1: So I think like just the kind of inherent nature of like blockchains uh, you and especially like delegated proof of stake, you can't really force validators to do anything. right? It's because token holders um, have delegated enough tokens to these validators for them to be in the active set where they're getting involved with the, the chain consensus. Um, And I mean, often with chains, you'll have foundations who will delegate to validators on their chain and they'll have like a list of criteria to say, okay, we will delegate to validators who are doing X, Y, Z, which is beneficial to our chain. So often, uh, like foundations will have within their policy to say, okay, we're going to delegate to validators that are also running relay infrastructure. But yeah, as we touched on mm. earlier, it's like more difficult to run relay infrastructure than being a validator. So yeah, it's, I think it's also like, as you said, some, some validators are kind of using it as like a, a selling point for why you should choose to, to delegate to, to them as well. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like, it's like a, a problem with decentralization, right? You can't really force, uh, <laughs> you can't really force anyone to do anything. Uh. Mm.
0: So I want, to, I want to come back to uh, what I've kind of pinned there for, for later, which was this I, uh, IBC solidity implementation. So it, it is my understanding that IBC works when chains have uh, faster instant finality because they're able to send this message and have assure that chain B knows that chain A is not going to have a reorg. And essentially that this, this transaction will be final so that once chain B takes an action, it, it has a high level of certainty that chain A won't revert or reorg. With uh, Ethereum consensus, the assumptions around finality are different. Liveness assumptions, are it has higher liveness, but lower finality guarantees where there can be reorgs. And that is inherent to the fact that Ethereum has essentially an unlimited number of validators and Tendermint has a set number of validators and and that has an impact on finality. Uh, Not to get into kind of consensus theory here, but that's kind of the gist of it. Um, When when people are trying to build IBC implementations for other chains, this needs to be taken into account. I'm I'm curious, what are the, uh, what are the, what's in the works to have IBC uh, work with Ethereum and what mechanisms would be in place uh, to uh, make up for this this difference in finality between consensus. And I guess it also applies to other chains that have different finality mechanisms or or guarantees.
1: Yeah. So I guess like to take a step back to make it a bit more general, just for any two chains to have an IBC connection, you need an IBC implementation in line with the specification on both chains. So if you want the Cosmos Ethereum connection, you have IBC Go on the Cosmos chain, and then on the Ethereum side, you'd have IBC Solidity. And then you also need Relayer infrastructure that's operational between both chains, and you need a light client of uh the the two chains that you want to track so on cosmos you have an ethereum like client and then on um ethereum you have the like tendermint like client um which would be comet bft yeah yeah well comet bft sorry sorry sorry, sorry. (laughs) yeah yeah comet bft um and as as you mentioned uh, ethereum has this like two slot finality so uh, basically you can't guarantee that a transaction will be in the um like canonical fork of ethereum until two more blocks uh, down the line have been uh, sub- submitted to the chain. So for like the the constraint here is on the light client updates like you can't use the light client update until you are certain that that transaction, is actually gonna be in the chain. So that's why for a uh, Ethereum connection between Cosmos and Ethereum, you'd have to wait until you're kind of two blocks, um, two blocks in the future, or like you can think of like the, the block, the, the, the light client up update has to wait two blocks, or you can only update the light client with block headers that have happened kind of two blocks in the past, it's like kind of slightly different approaches. Um if you wanted to like update the uh, like client and wait, wait two blocks, there is like a parameter, which isn't really used called the connection delay period, which is to say, I would have to wait a certain period of time before I can actually use this like client update for any um, IBC transaction. Or you could just set it up so that actually I'm only allowed to take um, block headers from like, two blocks in the past to ensure that you've got like finality at the point that you want to, um, do your IBC transaction. But that's just kind of like one, um, one problem with, um,
0: I'm still here. My video is still mean, yeah, Go on. sorry. <laughs> yeah.
1: I was like, uh, do I keep going? Or... Um, yeah. So that's kind of like one, any one element, but the, the other elements is like, um, the signing the signature scheme that's used on ethereum makes it like really quite expensive to be running a light client on ethereum um so i think they use this ed is it two five five i can't remember the numbers they basically use a different signing scheme to as is used with cosmos um chains um and this means that you have to um validate loads of signatures in a really inefficient way for light clients, which makes it really computationally expensive to actually do this light client update, which would underpin connection. Um, So that's like another big barrier to actually having this direct connection. So it's not just like the latency, but it's also the cost. Um, And I I think, I mean, my, my perspective is, um, I think ideally, um, ethereum should be supporting some kind of like signature pre-compiled to make it less computationally expensive or um actually like having an eip submitted which supports a different signing scheme if they really want to have kind of like client-based interoperability um which i, I and i know that as well like the kind of finality question i think on the roadmap for Ethereum, there is like a long term goal to have um, like single slot finality. And I think realistically, once those things are achieved, it would be more realistic. But however, there are also other kind of workaround solutions. So there's like the ZK light clients, which people have been looking into, yeah. which would reduce this, um, this kind of computational cost. And Polymer also have like, another kind of solution where they're trying to move this computation off the Ethereum chain, um, but still allow you to like tap into the like IBC semantics. Um, So I think my view is like a direct IBC connection, although it would be amazing. It's just probably not super practical right now. Um, I think in the future it will be, but then I also think there's gonna be kind of these other, other solutions which would work around this and make it more feasible. Um, yeah, but yeah would, I, I mean,
0: it would be great if we had single, like if Ethereum, I, so I didn't know about this two slot finality. Um, wh- what is the delay essentially? Like if you're, if you know, if we were to implement IBC now with like this two slot finality, what's the longest it would take for uh, a light client to be able to verify that a transaction is final on Ethereum?
1: I think it's something, it would be something around like 14 minutes or something. I think uh okay. yeah. an epoch on a per- Ethereum is somewhere between five and seven minutes I'd, yeah. uh And then if you're using like a ZK like client approach, you've got the time to construct the proof. But I think that's kind of um the the, the longer the longer time in this whole process is going to be waiting for those those two blocks.
0: Interesting. Are you familiar with uh, some of the zk stuff, like like Polymer and um, some some other project I've seen is called Lagrange. They're doing like this generalized proof network. Like, I mean, it's just it's pretty looks pretty. Insane.
1: Actually, I've not heard of Lagrange. I've, I I know Polymer. Like Polymer are like contributors to IBC. Like they contributed uh, multi hops back, and they did some work on a local host client as well um they're just generally working on cool ibc stuff as well and they have their yeah their product vision of having um a polymer kind of chain as a router which would connect non um non like native the ibc chains so like non-cosmos chains to all all of the cosmos ibc connected chains like an interoperability hub Kind of thing, yeah. um, I guess, kind of like Axelar, but really based on IBC rather than um, like the threshold signing scheme that they have.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do one with Polymer as well. Um, they're, yeah, uh, they're they're very good. they're very heads down building though. I feel like,
1: um,
0: but I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm I mean, very very excited about what they're doing.
1: Yeah. Um. I mean, the team's great like um, both great, there's Peter as well. They're, they're all, yeah, I think, yeah, head down building, very clever guys. Um, I'm also excited to see how, how everything they're working on uh, comes to fruition.
0: <laughs> so before we wrap up here, um, what's next for IBC? Uh, maybe on the protocol level, you know, th- it will the does the protocol need to evolve? I mean, if it's just message passing, and most of what's kind of you know evolving uh, and providing new use cases is the stuff that we're sending through it, right? Like these ICS standards. Does IBC itself uh, have a, a roadmap, right, in terms of improving? I don't know this message passing. And what are the things in terms of applications that you're most interested uh, or most excited about?
1: So. Yeah, there's, there's 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 much more to be done on the protocol. It's definitely not finished. I mean, in like the next few months, I mentioned channel upgradability, which basically allows you to update the application module, which is um, has claimed a channel or add middleware to both ends of channel whilst retaining all of the existing state, really important for token fungibility. And then this means that you could add fee middleware to existing channels. So it's exciting to see what's gonna happen there. Then there's new kind of channel orderings. Um, so for I mentioned with Interchain chain accounts, there's a requirement to have ordered channels, um, which would close on a timeout. Um, as this is a pain point, it would be really interesting to look into ordered channels, which allow a timeout. Um, also on the protocol, like one problem, like links to token fungibility is if you want to send your token from chain A to chain B and then to chain C. Um, it wouldn't be fungible with a token that's gone from chain A to chain C. Um, so basically, this would be if like a user wants to send their token from chain B to chain C, after go- coming from chain A, you would kind of automatically route it back to A and to C so that you retain fungibility. So it's kind of like a, would be like a UX improvement. Yeah, that's a big
0: kind of. issue, right? If we could, Yeah. That's, that's something yeah. that I've, I've encountered myself, and and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. some workaround for that would be really cool. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So that that's like uh, on our on our horizon as well. So just the um, the
0: problems here, just to maybe clarify, problem is if you move say um, atoms from osmosis or to osmosis, and then to Juno, and then you go back into Adam from Juno, you essentially have. IBC atom, ICS20 atom on the Cosmos hub you're not going to go back to atom you have to unwind that yeah. transaction in order to come yeah. back and so this would if eff- that effectively un- go back through atom and move those tokens uh into whatever other chain you're you know, back to the to the cosmos hub yeah. rather than you know going from Juno would come back through Osmosis
1: yeah but the idea That's would really cool. be that you you'd never get to the point where you've got this atom uh, that's gone. This ICS-20. Yeah. yeah. It's like you'd only ever have like one hop tokens because Mm -hmm. every IBC token, it's called an IBC denomination and it has a record of the the channels that this token has traveled through. It's kind of part of the security guarantees of IBC. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, this can cause like UX problems. Like when you try and, if I have my atom from the hub sent to osmosis and then it's like actually i now need this atom on umi to to do some you know whatever uh lending kind of stuff or you know this is another i want to send it to injective um mm-hmm. then you know it's it's like from an user you're just like oh, okay i want to go here now <laughs> but you actually have to think actually if i want to be able to use the applications on on uh, umi or injective my token needs to be fungible with all of the other tokens there. Um, so you need to, like, unwind it. Um, so having this kind of done automatically in the background would be um, pretty pretty big win there. And there's also yeah. kind of other new channel types. So for queries, um, right now, both designs are, like, kind of um, request and receive. But I think having a subscribe and publicize model would be it's like something which seems to have a lot of interest and a new channel type could enable this so kind of having like a broadcast channel type where it's like people would say i want to listen to what's coming out of this channel and then it's kind of like push 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 data from this channel uh to whoever's like subscribing so yeah and uh i think and a thing that i'm really excited about which is like um with like actually doing some work to like enable this this workflow better is for more kind of uh like cosmosm and composability and having more cross-chain contracts. Um the like initial protocol was designed without like a callback from the application modules. So if if I'm not a person calling an application, there's not right now an automated way to know that like your your your, your cross chain transfer has completed, unless you did like an on chain query.
0: Okay. Well, I think her internet. We've we're having a lot of technical difficulties here um, with my camera and uh, and uh, her internet. Um, so hopefully. Gets resolved here in a second.
1: Hi. Yeah. Sorry.
0: <laughs> no, no Sorry. worries.
1: I, I uh, I just yeah, my my internet just went a bit bad there. Um, yeah.
0: No worries. No, it's it sounds like it sounds like there's a lot of really cool things coming down the pike and. Um, really excited to see like all the applications and the, the application space that this opens up. And I think that in many ways, it's just the beginning. It, it feels like IBC yeah. as a protocol is about to get a whole lot better with, you know, wider adoption of I of interchain accounts, wider adoption of interchain queries, and the cool things that people are going to do with that, this transaction unwinding uh, problem that is only going to make IBC better and the user experience of IBC will be a whole lot better. And we haven't even talked about like stuff like inter- uh, interchain security, which is actually also a part of IBC.
1: Yeah, also um, IBC, yeah.
0: Also known as CVV, apparently, which yeah. is the technical yeah. standard. Cross chain, <laughs> chain validation. So, um, yeah, I think we might have to do another episode at some point uh, to get an update. <laughs> Uh, on all this stuff, uh, but yeah, thanks so much for coming on. It's been really interesting, and I've yeah. learned so much about IBC, how it works, and uh, now have e- even better conviction that it's you know, one of the one of the most important standards uh, in the interchain, and certainly one that I think um, is expanding outside of what we typically know as you know the interchain or the Cosmos ecosystem. So it's 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 really satisfying to see that actually coming to fruition. So thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. And to our listeners, uh, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for watching uh, the podcast. If you enjoy this content, please consider subscribing. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm set 3.0 and you could also stake with Interop. Just look for Interop in the active validator set. Thanks so much for watching I'll see you next week.